All right, so we are in Galatians 7 today. Like, there is no Galatians 7. That's the point. We are in the last part of Revelation chapter 1. Interesting thing about the book of Revelation is the book of Revelation does say that anyone who reads the words, hears the words, and obeys the words will be blessed. So as we study this book, it's a reminder that as we hear the words, that as I read the words, and that as we obey the words, there is a blessing coming. Amen? So I believe that those who don't have faith, that faith will come alive. Faith is going to come alive as we read this book. But there's still something that we have to do. We have to read them, we have to hear them, and then we also have to obey them. It's exciting for me that life can trans that there's transforming power in this book. That people of all ages, young and old, as it's read, as it's obeyed, and as it's heard, transformation will come to all ages. Because it didn't say, it did, the book did not say, John did not say that, well, only people 18 and above will receive a blessing. Your infants, your teenagers, yourself, your grandparents are going to receive a blessing. Who's excited about that blessing? God wants us to be excited about that blessing. You realize that. Now, the blessing that's coming is not Lamborghinis or billions of dollars. The blessing is knowing Jesus more intimately and walking with him in greater peace. The best thing that we can have, a relationship with the king. Amen? So what we're going to, uh, what, what's going on here in the book of Revelation is John is in his vision. He's having this vision um, given to him by God. And in this vision, what he is seeing is the unveiled Jesus. So Jesus in his splendor. Jesus, when he was here on earth, he was veiled because we can't see him. We couldn't recognize him. And often in scripture, um, when he reveals himself, it's never fully. Now we do have the Mount of Transfiguration where um, I still think he was veiled a little bit but he was unveiled more, right? But John is explaining what Jesus looks like. And what Jesus looks like is something that we should marvel at. You and I should marvel at the image of Christ. So Revelation chapter 1, verse 12, as we um, looked at last week. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned around... I saw seven golden lampstands. So what we learned last week is the seven lampstands are the seven churches that are to be those who are carrying God's light around the world. Now, the number seven represents perfection or completion. So what John is seeing is the complete church, the whole church, the church in general, its job is to carry God's light to the world. Amen? There's something that the church is supposed to partner in doing. And sometimes that can be scary. It can be scary 
it was scary for me to be at the church, or at the church. I guess it can be a church. It was scary for me to be at the school on Friday. It was scary for me to be at home with my new neighbor talking to him. It was scary when um, the neighbors who didn't know me started to ask questions. It's scary. Um, often throughout Scripture, we think that Paul just carried this boldness and that Paul knew exactly what he was going to do. And he just walked around undignified all the time to think that, hey, I'm not afraid of anything. Paul often asked that you would pray for his boldness. I ask the same thing, that you would pray for my boldness. Paul himself said, pray for my boldness because he recognized that it is scary. So being the light or carrying God's light to the world is scary, right? Anyone. But the good news is this, is what we talked about last week is in the middle of these seven lampstands, here's what John saw. And among the lampstand, lampstands was someone like a son of man. So the seven lampstands are the seven churches. And in the middle of the complete church, who's standing there? Jesus is standing there. So in the middle of our lives and our situations and our frustrations and in our fears, who's in the middle of it? Jesus. Jesus is in the middle of crisis, of the crisis of life, of the fears of life, of the worries of life, in the successes of life. Jesus is in the middle. And we shouldn't marvel at him. Today, Jesus is with you. Can we take a deep breath? Jesus is with us today. Who else do you want with you? Who else do you want on your side? Scripture is telling us that Jesus is here today. Now look, I'm so happy that we have a church body here. But there's always like, I wish this person would come to church, and I wish that person would come to church. And there's always like, I wish there was more. And then you say, what can I do better? Or what can we do better? You know what only matters is that we as a church and I as an individual offer him praise and honor and glory because he's in the middle of it all. Our goal is to honor the one who is in the middle of it all. So what we're going to look at today is, that was kind of last week's review, is Jesus is our great high priest. So verse 13, Revelation chapter 1. And among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest. So as John is explaining what he's seeing what Jesus looks like, what often we get messed up is we see Jesus kind of looking like this picture up here, right? With a beard, white, long hair. Um, that's not what Jesus looked like. Like, it, it just doesn't even make sense from the region that he came from. So Jesus does not look like this. This is the American Jesus. Oh, now I'm getting, now, I guess now I'm preaching. It's the loudest someone has been ever. Yep. <laughs> I'm pre... Get the organ. 
This isn't what Jesus looks like. John is explaining what Jesus looks like. So Jesus is in the middle, the image of Christ. Jesus is in the middle of seven churches, and that's where we need to start thinking of him. When we think of Jesus, we need to think of seven lampstands, which is the seven churches, and Jesus being in the middle of that. So there's his location, right? He's also seated in heaven, and while he's seated in heaven, he's also interceding on the behalf of his bride. So we need to think of that. He's seated next to the Father, but John is also explaining to us that he is our great high priest. What John is describing about Jesus is not to be overlooked. Symbolically and in reality, Jesus is our priest. He's our pastor. He's our leader. And not only is he our pastor and our leader, the one that we look to, he's dressed in a long robe and a golden sash wrapped around his chest. And this is what priests would wear in the Old Testament. So just out of Exodus that we went through several years ago, Exodus 28, verse 4 and 5. These are the garments that they are to make, a breastpiece, an ephod, a rod, a woven tunic, a turban, and a sash. They are to make these sacred garments for your brother Aaron and his sons, so that they may serve me as priests. Have them use gold and blue and purple, scarlet yarn and fine linen. So Jesus was revealing to John and through John, and he was reiterating, so Jesus was reiterating himself as the great high priest. He's saying, look, I, Aaron was this way, Aaron wore these things, this is what priests wore, but I am wearing this. This is what I wear. So through imagery, he was setting himself up in the middle of the church as saying, I am the leader. Amen? We also see it in Hebrews, Hebrews 7, 23 through 25. Now there have been many of those priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he um, always lives to intercede for them. But Jesus lives forever. He has a permanent priesthood. Jesus lives forever. He is the permanent pastor. He is the permanent leader in the middle of the churches. So as our great high priest or as our pastor, Jesus completely saves those who come to him and he is interceding for us right now. Can you believe that? Jesus is interceding for you right now? You personally. The unspoken things in your life, the frustrations, the fears, the doubts, the sins, the shortcomings, Jesus is interceding on your behalf to the Father. You know what helps me get through some hard times is knowing that I have elders that are praying for me. Knowing that I have someone that's lifted up my name in prayer. Doesn't that help you guys when you're dealing with something? I remember um, growing up being able to call Pastor Lyndon, 834, or, well, now you have to dial 937. You never used to have to do that. 
technology. 834, who knows it with me? 3341. You leave it on that. Hi, this is the goods. We're not available. <laughs> hey, Pastor Lyndon, this is what's going on. Will you pray for me? And I know that Pastor Lyndon prayed for us. Amen? There's something comforting about knowing that someone is interceding for you, petitioning heaven. So I find comfort in man when they intercede for me. But Jesus, as our great high priest, is interceding for you in your situation right now. Jesus is petitioning the Father right now in heaven for the Schultz family and for DJ, for every other issue in here. Isn't that comforting to know that we have a great high priest who's not above interceding for you and I? So Jesus is our great high priest. The other thing that John is now seeing in the book of Revelation is that Jesus is unmatched in his wisdom. Verse 14, the hair on his head was like white wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. See, we do ourselves a disservice if we miss how this connects to the Old Testament. Um, see, this isn't the first time that Jesus was described as being wise. Sometimes um, there's people in the mid middle of leadership at your work, in your neighborhood, or wherever you are, in your friend group, that someone who's in the middle of the leadership that is just not wise. Any of you guys have any of those? You just have people that you're like, how did you get here? What are you, that makes no sense. Who are you paying off? Or what do you know about somebody? And you have these people who are, who are not wise within these situations. What John is explaining is he's saying, look, Jesus in the middle of the complete church, the whole church, he's there interceding for us. And not only is he interceding for us, he is our great high priest because he has the wardrobe and he's identifying as that. And what he identifies as, he is. Because what do we know about who he is? He, he says, I am who I am. Who is he? I am. Jesus is him. If you know, you know. Jesus is him. So now what he's saying is the person who's in the middle of all this is wise. We can trust him. So um, last week we brought up the fact that Jesus was being described as like the son of a man. And we referenced Daniel chapter 7, 13 and 14 for that cross-reference. In the same chapter of Daniel chapter 7. But in verse 9, God the Father is described as his hair being like white wool. So this is interesting. Daniel 7 verse 9. As I looked, thrones were set in place, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was like, sorry, his clothing was as white as snow, and the hair on his head white like wool his throne was like flame uh, his throne was flaming with fire and its wheels were all ablaze 
John here in the book of Revelation is describing the Son of Man, which is Jesus, in terms for God himself. So there's this connection that we can't miss that what John is explaining is not only is this Jesus, but Jesus is also God. So he's explaining Jesus as he's, he's beginning to almost introduce and show the picture of Jesus and God being different but being the same. The Trinity, right? So he's explaining Jesus as God here. Um, and what that means is he is before time and he will be here long after. With him being God and his, um, with him being God, that means that he comes with ageless wisdom. Many conversations that I find myself in is, um, and I agree with everyone who says this, is, Joey, you're only in your 30s. You don't know what you don't know in your 30s, what you will know in your 40s. And you don't know what you don't know in your 40s that you will know in your 50s. And you don't know what you know in your 50s, what you'll know in your 60s. I don't um, tend to act like I know everything. I do know that the Holy Spirit that lives inside of me means that I can't look, or I can't let anyone look down upon me because I'm young. Amen? Likewise, because you're older than me doesn't mean that I don't um, yield and submit to that wisdom either. But what happens is as humans, we, we start to say, well, because we're this age or older than you, or I, I look at Mark and say, well, because I'm in my 30s and you're in your 20s, then I have more answers. And to some degree, there's more answers that I have, no different than Mark Miller has more answers than I have. And we just put this grading system of wisdom, but the fact of the matter is Jesus and God have ageless wisdom. From the beginning to the end, they have ageless wisdom. So this person that we're interacting with, the person who is in the middle of our crisis, the person who is in the middle of the churches, who is our priest, carries ageless wisdom. So, you know what's funny though, is within our culture today, we see, uh, or we don't see age as a symbol of honor or wisdom. Often older people are written off. They don't know what life means or if they would just understand Um, we don't see it as honor. We don't see it as wisdom. So what ends up happening is people just always want to look young, right? Y'all ever been around someone who's not smiling, but their lips are telling you they're smiling because they got so much Botox in there? <laughs> You're like, what is going on? Why are you so happy today? Like, what do you mean? I, I, I'm really sad. No, you've been smiling the whole day. Or one eyebrow's up here, really swollen. Or these wrinkles are really puffed out. They got this Botox going on. So people pay for Botox, surgeries, hair transplants, etc. People simply try to look young all of the time. Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't treat our bodies as temples, that we shouldn't um, treat our bodies well, right? I, I think there is something in the kingdom that we also need to steward our bodies physically, um, spiritually, and emotionally really well. But what happens is within our culture, we always try to look young. 
See, but the Bible explains it differently. Because God has, Jesus has, ageless wisdom. But the Bible says that um, with age comes a lot of good things, right? Proverbs 16, 31. Gray hair is a crown of splendor. It is, a, um, it is attained in the way of righteousness. How many gray hair people we got in here? Come on now. Splendor. Right? Righteousness. You guys have a crown of splendor. You don't think about it that way, do you, though? Because what we think about with gray hair is, I wish I had a full head, like full head of hair, just nice and colored like I was when I was 17. Now, some of y'all been balding since 17, too, and gray since 17, so 14, whatever it was. But I thought to myself, that proverb isn't saying anything about those who are balding, right? I'm trying to receive splendor. I'm trying to be seen as righteous. So you better believe I went and found out what the Bible says about balding. I had to search far too. Leviticus 13, 40 through 40. And this is all free. So you're like, he's kidding. No, I'm serious. Leviticus 13, 40 through 41. A man who has lost um, his hair and is bald as clean. If he has lost his hair from the front of his scalp and has a bald forehead, he is clean. Won't he do it? Clean, 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 clean. Y'all got some time. <laughs> we clean. Pray for Mark Miller. <laughs> he's still got his uh, crown of glory. Yeah. He's, he's righteous. A white head, clean, coming in. Travis, you're going to have to go listen to it. <laughs> So that's why the kids always tell me, I thought it was their just modern language. Joby, why are you so clean? I thought they were just being nice to me, telling me I had a nice fit. Or I was mid, but no, they're talking about my crown of splendor up here. A white head is a crown of glory. We don't think about it that way. So Jesus isn't old from the standpoint, he doesn't have gray hair because gray hair represents him being old and what culture says useless. Jesus has gray hair because it represents age and wisdom. Age is something that is okay within the kingdom. Leviticus 19, 32. You shall rise before the gray-headed, and honor the presence of an old man, and fear your God, I am the Lord. So it should shift the way we feel about aging. But also, when we think about the image of Christ, when we think about the image of God, to just put him with this long, drawn-out, perfectly um, brown, whatever, hair, I think we're missing the point. John is explaining that Jesus has gray hair. I think most of us don't like aging because of what it means. 
Historically, what it means is the fading of our ability to do what we used to do. But that was never in God's original plan for you and I. God never had the intention for aging to be the fading of our ability to do what we used to do. Aging was supposed to represent deeper relationships, greater maturity, greater knowledge of Him. But because of sin, but because of Adam and Eve, but because of our sin that has invited evil into the world, aging on this side of heaven represents something a little bit different. So it was never the intent, but in a fallen world, it has enabled aging to mean something different. See, what John saw in Jesus was aging, but that didn't mean lack of ability. It meant splendor and honor. It meant wisdom and power. Amen? So in the middle of the seven churches is a priest who's standing there in the middle of crisis in a robe with gray hair that represents honor and glory and splendor and wisdom. Someone that we can trust. And in the midst of the crisis our world has experienced the past several years, guess who's in the middle of it all? Jesus, who we can trust. Amen. So John moves past that. And now he starts to describe his eyes. And his eyes reveal his omniscient power. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were like blazing fire. His eyes being like blazing fire speaks of his ability to see through all falsehoods. All of the falsehoods that you and I put on, Jesus sees through it. Fire often speaks of purification and or judgment. So God's gaze does both. God sees through our fake smile. God sees through our fake actions in front of church people. God sees us. His fiery eyes see it. That's something we should kind of fear too, right? His strength is unmatched. Verse 15. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. How many of you guys have ever, oh, no, I'm skipping forward. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace. So what John is describing is his feet can't be moved. He is the best offensive tackle the world has ever seen. He is not moving. He is the best sumo wrestler. Every sumo wrestler in existence couldn't move him. The devil cannot move him. Your problems cannot move him. Your fears cannot move him. His feet cannot be moved. But not only can his feet not be moved, watch this, his feet can crush every enemy. 
This is your God. This is your Jesus who's standing in the middle of your crisis right now. That's good news. And not only can his feet not be moved, not only can he crush every enemy with his feet, he is a permanent force. Amen? His feet will do what to the serpent? Crush its head. These bronze feet. You know how your parents used to say, don't make me the bottom of my foot, whatever? I don't even know how that goes. Don't make me imprint this on the back of your butt or whatever. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm misinterpreting something. My parents never said it, but I feel like I heard it somewhere. <laughs> don't, don't let this, whatever. Jesus' bronze feet, don't let that be imprinted. His bronze feet are going to imprint that serpent one day. Bronze feet are going to imprint that serpent one day. Amen? His voice draws attention. People have often asked, how do you hear the voice of God? Um, that's not the sermon today, but we'd love to talk to you guys about it. His voice is often much louder than an audible voice. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. How many of you guys have ever been to Niagara Falls? Pretty unique, isn't it? How many of you guys have ever been to the ocean? And then how many of you guys have been to the ocean at night? The ocean at night is intimidating. You're standing next to it, and you just can't really see anything. And you wonder if the Loch Ness Monster is a real thing or not. And then these crabs are crawling out. And just the power and the wind. It's a force. The ocean is a force. And this is a scripture that I actually brought up in one of my, actually, um, to my neighbor, and I brought up to one of the school administrators this week. So then I want to share with you how um, God is alive and God is real and why I still trust him through chaos. Several years ago, uh, my dad and I went to a pig sale in Washington Courthouse. And while we went to this uh, Bob Evans, we're sitting, in, and some of you guys have heard this story. We'll share it again because it came alive to me. We're sitting at Bob Evans and we're eating. Of course, right? Dad probably got two trucker specials and a coffee. <laughs> I got uh, probably just a Southwest omelet or something. Dry toast with uh, strawberry, extra strawberry. The grape stuff's not good at Bob Evans. So we're eating, and um, it's almost time to leave. And my heart started to break for this waitress. The waitress was in her 50s or 60s, and my heart started to break, and it started to consume me to where even in conversation with my dad, it was hard to engage because the vo I felt like the voice of God was telling me that I needed to minister to her. And I'm like, it's kind of embarrassing to do it in front of family members. It's kind of like a weird place. We're in Washington Courthouse. I'm not sure what to do. Why would I do this? Like, God, is that really you? Any of you guys ever had those all-consuming moments where you're like, God, is that really you? So I'm in this moment. I'm like, God, is that really you? And what I've learned is just err on the side of it being God, right? 
So God, is this really you? God, is this really you? So then I said to this, while talking to my dad, and I feel like God is telling me to minister to this woman. I'm like, I don't even know what I say. God, if this is you, this woman is going to spill water. She's just going to spill it. And then I'll know that it's you. Don't mess around me, right? You will spill water. So what ends up happening is dad goes to the bathroom. He told me, hey, pick up the check if she brings it. And then let's meet up at the register. The waitress comes back. And um, she looked at me and she said, do you hear that? I said, hear what? She said, I, I hear this water. I hear this, like, like this waterfall. I hear like there's this faucet open. I just hear this water all over the place. Do you hear that? I said, I don't hear that. She said, you don't hear that? I said, I don't hear that. I was done. I didn't know what to do. I freaked out. She didn't spill water. Surely that wasn't God, right? So I walked out. I needed to process with someone right now. So I said, Dad, here's what's going on. Here's what I just experienced. Woman started to make me feel a certain way, not the same certain way that Macy makes me feel, but certainly a different way, right? Like, there was nothing, like, drawn towards her, any attraction or anything, because sometimes we get so messed up in those emotions. No, this woman started to make me feel this way. I told God that if he wanted me to talk to her, she would spill water, but she told me that she was hearing like a waterfall, like, like there was a faucet open in this water spilling. I said, what would you do? So for the, all the time throughout the pig sailing, we just talked about what he would do, what he thinks I should do, and we you know, had a good conversation the rest of the day, and it was a good time. So I generally forgot about that story, um, and I'm sharing this to my neighbor and one of the people at the school. And I told him about how at church we're going through the book of Revelation. And while I was studying several weeks ago, I got to this point. And um, his feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. And I said, isn't he real? Isn't God good? If you guys aren't tracking with the story, that woman heard the voice of God. And I looked at the person at the school, and I look at you today, and I looked at my neighbor, and I said, I don't care if you believe me. I don't care if you believe me or not. I hope you believe me, but I don't care if you believe me. Because when I cried out to God, he answered. And I said, but here's why, I told them both, Here's why you don't get to see God as much as I get to see God, not because of special favor, but because I'm studying his word, and then when I study his word, I see it come alive. So if we're not studying the word of God, then we don't get to see the word of God come alive. So then the world who's blinded walks throughout life, and they say, well, where is God? How could God? Why would God? And I'm like, no, I see him, I see him, I see him, I see him, I see him. So then I looked at both of these people and I said, look, I'm frustrated that this has happened, but my faith is still trusting and believing that God is good because I've met him and I know him and I know he's at work in people's lives today. This woman heard the voice of God. I wish I would have known that then, right? How different would we interact with the world today? How often would we be able to be used by God if we just knew his scripture more and knew that he was at work? Why is it that I've read past this several times 
and I've never seen it. So blessed that she heard the voice of God. So his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. His hands are protective. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. It's said um, that the seven stars are the seven, uh, and the seven stars are known as angels. Yet these angels are known as God's messengers to the churches. So essentially, these seven stars are leaders within the churches. Now, whether these seven stars are actually angels or they're just human messengers, I can't say today. But what we can say is that these seven angels represented in Scripture represent messengers of the good news. But what I can also say is this, is the seven stars were protected by the right hand of God. Messengers of God are protected by the right hand of God. The right hand of God represents, seems like God was right-handed. I'm not preaching that, but maybe I'm preaching it. It seems like they're protected by the right hand of God, right? And in the right hand, essentially what it means is it represents authority and power. So in God's right hand, we are protected. We also see this in the book of John. Um, John 10, 28. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Now, I believe what John was seeing was that God has and will protect his church. God has and will protect his church. So it made me think about um, John 10, 28. Many people have used John 10, 28 as this idea of once saved, always saved. We're not going to go down that big rabbit hole today. But people say, well, I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. So what people have said is, if you're in God's hand, then you can never be taken out. I actually believe what's being spoken about here is um, just kind of a cross scripture pointing to the fact that God holds his churches and his messengers in his right hand. So he's protecting the churches, he's protecting the messengers, and nothing will prevail against his kingdom in eternity. You know there's going to be a church for the rest of time. Jesus' church will prevail for the rest of eternity. So I believe that John was saying that God will protect his church. Matthew 16, 18. And I tell you, that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. So God is protecting his church. Jesus is protecting his church with his right hand. Nothing can snatch his church away from him. Amen? So in the midst of the crisis that we're feeling, in the midst of the persecution, in the midst of the pressure, nothing is going to snatch the church away from him. Now look, there will be persecution. There will be suffering. Some churches around the world have been decimated. Some people have been 
killed for their faith. But the church of Christ is not limited to one congregation. The church will never be lost. His mouth brings life, truth, and judgment. Remember, this, this, is, this is the Jesus that is being um, described. Not the Jesus that we see up there. Not the picture. But his mouth brings life, truth, and judgment. In his right hand, he held seven stars. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. His face was like the shining was, was like the sun, shining in all its brilliance. So in the beginning of time, out of God's mouth came all of his creative acts, right? Um, and now, um, yeah, and, and we know about those. So Second Peter reminds us of it. Second Peter 3, verse 5. But they deliberately forgot that long ago, by God's word, the heavens came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. So out of God's mouth came all of this. He created everything. So his mouth brings life. But also out of his mouth, he will slay the wicked. Isaiah eleven four. But with righteousness, he will judge the needy. With justice, he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. This is our Jesus. This is what John is seeing. Now, um, the mouth, the word, the voice of God, which is the double-edged sword, is sharp. And it's the only offensive weapon that believers have. You guys have heard this before. Ephesians 6, 17. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. So the word of God is sharper than any double-edged sword. So it's our only offensive weapon. Not only does it bring life, truth, and judgment, but it can divide soul from spirit Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and the attitudes of the heart. So the word of God, the word of Jesus, is that powerful. And what comes out of his mouth cannot be broken. That is which, um, yeah, so one author said, that is which is prophecy today will be history tomorrow. What God says will happen. Amen? That is which is prophecy today is history tomorrow. It is done. We believe it. And the good thing about the book of Revelation, what we understand at the end is who wins. He wins. And because he wins and we're engrafted into him, who wins? We win. So what is prophecy today is history tomorrow. And out of his mouth, out of the mouth of God, comes his judicial power. So, out of his, um, the word of God brings life, judgment, power, and authority. We're wrapping up. 
But how, how do we get bored with what our God looks like? What Jesus looks like? Who's standing in the middle? His presence is unmatched. His face was like the sun shining in all of its brilliance. Jesus is so perfect. He is so holy. His glory is so great that it's hard to even look at him. Matthew 17, 2. There was a tran- uh, there he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became as white as the light. His face shines like the sun. As bright as white. Come on, somebody. Isn't he worthy of everything? Everything? Not a little bit, but everything. How can we try to take advantage of this person? How can we try to hide anything from him? He sees right through us. He knows our hearts. And in the midst of all of this power, he wants to be in the middle of our life. He wants to be in the middle of our issues. John is unveiling to us who he is. Because if not, we might have this neat little picture of him looking like that guy up there. That's not what Jesus looks like. That's not who Jesus is. He's worthy of every thought, every action, every praise. Why? Because Jesus is unmatched, unrivaled, and he's uncontainable. That's our God. That's our King. That's why I have hope in tragedy. The power of Christ overwhelms us, but it also should inspire us. Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Do we have that type of reverence? When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. Even though John knew Jesus and Jesus and spent time with Jesus on earth, he was not ready for him to be unveiled. Even though we know Jesus, right? Even though we've tried to spend time with Jesus in prayer and at church, we're not ready to see him. Jesus' presence overwhelmed John. He fell at his feet as though dead. Jesus' appearance carried so much power and might that he has to tell John to not be afraid. Don't be afraid, afraid John. Don't be afraid. There was so much authority and splendor and glory. The image that John had of him, the knowing that John had of him, paled in comparison that what he was unveiled. That's exciting, isn't it? So, um, his appearance carried so much power and might that he has to tell John to not be afraid. He also had to allow John to experience his touch, though. Right? Do not be afraid. He touched John, and he said, do not be afraid. We need that touch as well today, don't we? Do not be afraid. 
And we have a generation of people who simply act so cavalier around Christ. We sometimes act so cavalier about Christ. One author said this, we dare not even touch a 60-watt light bulb without a glove, yet we often treat Jesus like a genie. A 60-watt light bulb with a glove, but we treat Jesus like a, a genie. Why do we do that? Everything that we've been describing or that John has been describing Jesus as, and we dare approach him as a genie. We dare approach him with a lack of reverence. We dare approach him with a lack of respect. We barely understand his holiness, yet we dare think that our acts of worship are about pleasing us. We can so easily come to church and express our dislike about this program or the worship song or who is sharing from the pulpit or what we need to do. And we continually forget that our worship is a heart condition, not a robust following of our opinion. We must begin to fear him. You know why I'm included in this? You know why sometimes I don't like the worship songs? Because it's not the song that I like. And I want worship to make me feel a certain way. It's not about him. It's about me. So then what I do is I go home and complain to Macy that I didn't like the song set today. Carissa, you've done a great job. So then I just complain. Who's that about? Who's it about is me lacking the fear of God. Me not showing reverence to him. We must have fear for him. The beginning of all wisdom is the fear of the Lord. We find that in Proverbs 9. Um, if we don't fear him, watch this. If we don't fear him, we resemble his enemies. If you and I do not fear God, if you and I do not approach him with, with reverence, we resemble his enemies. Psalms 36.1, for the director of music of David, the servant of the Lord, I have a message from God in my heart concerning the sinfulness of the wicked. There is no fear of God before their eyes. There is no fear for God before their eyes. So if we don't fear God, we resemble the enemies, his enemies. Now just because we are to fear him, God tells us to not be afraid. There's a fear, but there's a comfort. He places his comforting hands on us to allow us to know him. Now, this isn't a contradiction. He's not saying, fear me and trust me. He's saying, know my power, revere me, and know that I love you. And those go hand in hand. Look, um, you don't want to be with some wimpy person, right? God's just saying, I'm not wimpy. Like, I'm loving to you, and I'm caring for you, and I will protect you. But I also want you to know how strong I am and honor me for my strength. So fearing him means we have reverence for him. We address him with humility. But in his touch, we learn his nature towards us. He is 
who he said he was. The first and the last. The beginning and the end. And since he is who he said he was, guess what we could do? We can trust him for today. And if we wake up tomorrow, we can trust him for tomorrow. But because we can trust him today and tomorrow, we can trust him for our, salva our salvation. Because he is who he says he is. Amen? We're wrapping up. He holds the keys to death. I am the living one. I was dead and now look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death in Hades. So you often ask the question, who holds the keys to hell? And people would oft often say the devil. They often say that the devil has authority over hell, that the devil is the highest being in hell. No, who owns the keys to hell? Who slams the door? Jesus does. He is over hell. He's not in hell, but he is the one over hell. So he not only defeated death, he holds the keys to death in Hades. He alone opens and closes the door. He has the authority. So not only does he hold the keys, he has a plan. Verse 19, write therefore what you have seen, what is now, and will what take place later. So in the middle of the dysfunction, he is our priest. He's dressed in some awesome swag, I guess. He is our priest. He's wearing a robe. He has power. He has power in his right hand. He's holding us. He's protecting us. He has feet of bronze. He is wise. He holds the keys to death. But in the middle of all of our issues, in the middle of the crisis of the world, guess what? He has a plan. Isn't that good to know? God has a plan in your life today. God has a plan in your crisis today. God has a plan for many of us who are worried or thinking about Tuesday. God has a plan in Tuesday. And then if the world is here on Wednesday, he still has a plan. And if the world is here in three weeks, he has a plan. If you are here tomorrow, he has a plan. Isn't that good to know that God, that Jesus, has a plan for your life? He has a plan. So he kind of reveals this, what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. He's such a good God. And the last point, he will help us understand his word. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he starts off talking about the seven stars the seven church or the seven um, lampstands, and what he does is now he explains it. So as we read God's word, as we submit to him, he will help us understand the understanding of life in the Bible. Amen? Jesus tells us exactly what his word means. He is the teacher and he is the interpreter. 
yet it's only for those who have ears. The blessing comes for those who hear it, who um, say it, and those who obey it. Amen? Let's close our eyes. Father, I pray that you would just guide us through this moment, that you would speak to us. Where we have lacked reverence for you, where we have kind of um, depicted you as um, this white American who um, is just nice. Father, you are so much more. You look way different. I pray that we would revere you this week. That we would honor you this week. But Father, we'd also just know that you're in the middle of our crisis. You're in the middle of our frustration. And you have wisdom for our situations. So I pray that you would speak wisdom to us this week. And that in this wisdom, Father, that we would, um, we would submit to it. We would have trust in you. And Father, again, we just lift up every crisis going on in the church and in the community. We pray for healing in Jesus' name. We pray for restoration in Jesus' name. Just keep on sensing like just some kind of response to God today. Um, so Father, what kind of response do you want us to have to you? What kind of response are you asking for? I think just kind of what, um, I think at least what we'll try is no specific like if, 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 just if God is doing something in your life, I just feel like he wants you to say that right now. So just stand up if God is stirring you. You don't need to say what for, but if God is stirring you, just stand up in honor of him to say, God, you're stirring me in something. Just stand up. Father, may we just take this as an opportunity of obedience if you're stirring us. May we revere you Father, we just pray for those who are standing in the crisis, in the things that are going on in their life, in the things that you're working on, God. I pray for a double portion right now in Jesus' name. We love you. We need you. Help us revere you this week in Jesus' name. Amen? All right. We'll go back and study the scripture this week. Remember who he is.